Most things don't matter, but the few that matter, matter a lot. Welcome to 8020 Productivity, the show dedicated to helping you do more by doing less so that you can have more time and energy to enjoy life to the fullest. Now here's your host, author, speaker, and productivity nerd, Anthony Sani. This is part two of our deep dive into Greg McEwen's book, Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most. And the first part, we talked about a bunch of cool stuff. We talked about the connection between this book and his first book, Essentialism. We talked about efficiency and effectiveness, working and playing, how those two should go together, the the magic ingredient that makes routines and habits more effortless, amongst other really cool things. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go over to anthonysani.com slash podcast, or just search in the playlist of this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts, and you should be able to find that one super easy. In this episode, we're going into part two of the breakdown. Now, remember, this was recorded originally as one episode, but I broke it up after the fact because it ran really long. So this second episode, I'm going to talk about some other cool stuff. We're going to get into learning and how you can make learning more effortless and how learning effortlessly can make your life more effortless. Some really cool stuff, some really cool ideas coming up in this episode. So without further ado, let's get right into Part two of the 8020 breakdown of effortless, make it easier to do what matters most by Greg McEwen. Here's another one that I enjoyed immensely. This one comes out of the section on effortless action, effortless action. He quotes a sports writer here, Andy Benoit. I believe it's pronounced Benoit. Most geniuses prosper not by deconstructing intricate complexities, but by exploiting unrecognized simplicities. There's a lot to unpack there, as you might imagine. This took me a good couple of minutes to really ponder because 8020 productivity is about stepping back and seeing things in fairly in more in simpler terms in terms that are simpler less complex and for Andy ben- Benoit sports writer i presume he's talking about sports geniuses now you can think about sports in in ways that can get very complicated you know look at a game like american football soccer not soccer i'm talking about look at a game like american football and then look at a game like soccer look at a game like basketball These games can get very, very complicated, extremely complicated in the plays, especially at the the pro level. The plays almost algorithmic in how they can be executed. But what Andy Benoit says, and, and McEwen quotes him, is the geniuses are very good, not at unpacking or deconstructing complexities, but by exploiting unrecognized simplicities. So what I gather from this is you might execute something that appears simple, but to the person who wants to make them complex, they will see a lot of complexity and moving parts in what you do. But your thought process, your action is based on your recognition of a simple 
principle. Um, you can probably think of a lot of examples of this in your personal life. I know I certainly can. In, in my personal life, things I've done based on principle. I mean, even if you live by 80-20, that is a simple enough principle. But then when people see you doing very well, delegating tasks that aren't in your 20%, for example, or spending a lot of time getting very good at your 20%, just living off this, this, this bedrock principle, you'll be doing things that appear very complex and sophisticated, but because they're based on this recognized simplicity of how things really work, you would be operating at a genius level, essentially. So this particular thought jumped out to me. What I invite you to do and what I've decided to do more of these days is to, to seek out simplicities, not complexities. There's no getting away from complexity, no getting away from it at all. Some areas of life are inherently complex. But as we learn complexity, I believe we draw closer and closer to elegance and simplicity. And when we hit that simplicity, that's where I think the real genius is. So that was a very interesting thought I thought I'd share with you. Most geniuses prosper not by deconstructing intricate complexities, but by exploiting unrecognized simplicities. All right, so let's talk about steady work over time. This one, I, I, I had a few thoughts about this one. So in the book, McEwen makes an argument that it's better to have a steady level of work being done over a long period of time than it is to say work hard for short periods of time. This one was a little bit difficult for me because I've always believed in the power law. The idea that you work hard for a certain amount of time and then you play hard and rest hard. You recharge and then you do it again. This is not unlike the sprints you hear of in, in agile in agile um, product development language where people get together, they have these sprints, they produce, they do it again, they do it again, they do it again. And it, this is an interesting one for sure because he makes a very interesting argument for sustainability. And I can see how this would tie in with the idea of effortlessness, because if you get into a groove and you do things within a set amount of time every day, you have a set closing time every day, you start work at a certain time every day, like he talks about in the book, gives the example of a person who's built a whole ritual around ending his day by yelling out, I believe it was, it's 5, 10 p.m., you know, and then the person ends the day based on this principle of ending your day at a certain time, that makes you less effortful, more effortless, because you start and end at a certain time. And so you never really get to the point of burnout, which is something McEwen addresses um, in the book. At, you know, Burnout is generally a bad thing. But I'm not 100% convinced on this one, if I'm being honest with you, my friend. It's, it's, one of those, it's one of those principles that I believe it boils down to the individual, and you have to make an intelligent choice for yourself based on how you work. I found myself to be better at working in sprints and then just resting and doing it again. It's almost like you're thinking, are you a hunter? Are you a farmer? Are you a little bit of both? Right. The hunter works really hard, gets the kill, and then can feast on it for a long time. The farmer has to work every day to cultivate the land, but then 
the fruits also come out in that sense. So this is a tough one for me. I'm going to be thinking about it and exploring it a little bit better. All I have to offer you for this one are questions. Is this something that would work for you? If it will, then go for it. The most important thing is the 80-20 approach, right? Is effortlessness. Whatever feels the most natural for you and your rhythms, I say go for it. If it doesn't feel right, then it probably might not be the right approach for you. But something to think about. It jumped out to me, so I thought I'd share it. Okay, the other thing that McEwen talks about here is uh, linear versus residual efforts. Linear versus residual efforts. This is a big one. This is a big one. I mean, I say they're all big ones. They're all kind of big ones. But this one in particular, I liked because, first of all, I appreciate McEwen's craft of words, how he's crafted these words. His language here is very well selected, where he talks about linear versus residual. And the concept here is there are some efforts that produce linear results. So if I started tapping my hand on the table right now, right, every tap gives me, every motion that makes contact with the table gives me a tap, a tap, a tap, a tap. But if I went and built something that I could push a button and it would continue tapping until I pushed the button and made it stop. The first one is linear. Every, every input provides the output of the tap. The second one is residual. While it may take more time to build the machine that produces the tap or to record the tap and say, play it on a loop, for example, in a mixer or some audio device, in the long run, that's residual because that particular effort keeps on giving. And that's the idea he talks about that I really appreciate and I think would be useful for you as well is linear versus residual. The things you do in your work, in your life, in your job, in your business, in your relationships, how can you move more toward residual effort? Effort that keeps on giving versus a linear effort that you have to put something in each time if you want something out. For example, he gives the example of his book. You write the book once. There's a lot of effort that goes into it, but there's residual returns. Yeah, people pick up the book, they read it. It continues to give even long after he might be gone. This book will continue to give. And even if you think about it in terms of financial return, do you invest in something that continues to pay dividends for you? Or do you trade time for dollars, like they say? Let's face it, finances and value, financial value is an important part of life. How do you transition from linear returns to residual returns financially? Linear returns to residual returns in the effort of your energy that you're spending. Linear returns to residual efforts even in your parenting, which is another example he gave. And I thought that was pretty cool. How do you do that? And another one interesting bit he talks about here is residual decisions. And that's one of the question marks I had initially. But then as I pondered the contents of the book a little more and started to really compare it to 80-20 living, I could see the connection very clearly that decisions you have to make often, you could make them once and that becomes a residual decision. And I was reminded of, of an idea I read initially, I think it was from Jack Canfield, the man behind this, a lot of the chicken soup for the soul titles. And he had talked in one of his books about the concept of having a policy. And he says the policy is how he, he, he deals with 
issues. One of his policies is he doesn't loan his friends. He doesn't loan his car to his friends. And so whenever somebody asks him, you know, can I borrow your car? He says, oh, I'm sorry, I have a policy against loaning my car to my friends. He has had, he has his reasons for doing that. He's had experiences in the past that led him to make that decision. But that's a good example of a residual decision. I have made this decision once. I don't have to make it every single time. There's a lot to be said for the mental space that's freed up for effortless action when you make a decision once and it becomes a residual decision because it, it, it informs how you behave whenever you're faced with that decision or that situation again. So that was one that started out as a question mark for me, but as I thought about it, it became very clear. Yes, residual decisions are, are a useful and nuanced way to live effortlessly. And on top of that, I would add that you consider, I consider making as much of our work, as much of our efforts residual as possible. Um, because the more residual our efforts are, the higher payoff they'll have in the long run with less infusion of work. I'm going to end this discussion on residual versus linear by talking about residual learning. The instructional designer, the learning strategist in me was really drawn to this principles over methods, but this is residual learnings, but this is a big enough subject that I'll just mention it. And this section, I think it's worth its own section. So let's get into it. So principles over methods, residual learning. I'm a big believer in the power of learning as part of living 8020, living the law of the vital few. McEwen proposes something that, you know, as, as a person who is a professional in, in the learning and development field, some of what he said here was not necessarily new to me, but there is huge value in hearing something you already know restated in a new, in the context of, of, of 8020. And I believe these terms will be helpful to you, dear listener. McEwen proposes that you learn principles over methods. Principles over methods, because his position is principles are residual learning. Methods are linear. I'll give you an example. One that's pertinent to me is photography. Photography is my one of my chosen creative outlets that gives me some release, some joys, a hobby, really. If you understand what's, what photographers call the triangle of light, the, the three main parameters that affect how your image is going to turn out in terms of being properly exposed. Being exposed means how bright, how clear the image is going to be, how visible it's going to be. But if you understand the principle of the triangle of light, like they call it, or the, the exposure triangle, you can play with the different points, the three points of the triangle to create different effects in your images. There's a lot you can do when you understand the principles of the exposure triangle. Whereas if you focus on methods, then every time you want to take a picture, you have to consult your mind for a bunch of methods to execute that picture. But isn't it so much more useful to learn the principles behind those methods? That way you can manipulate those methods based on the results you want. And that's the principle of residual learning that McEwen presents. And he talks about learning principles over methods. There, it's not really explicit how he intends or he proposes that you do this. The learning designer, the learning strategist in me has a few ideas, but because this is a 80-20 breakdown of 
Effortless by, by McEwen. Let's talk about the three that I glean. I gleaned them from, from his discussion on this. And these show up in uh, the chapter called Learn, Leverage the Best of What Others Know. It's in part three under Effortless Results. And he tells three stories essentially. But from those three stories, I'm able to glean how I, how I believe McEwen is proposing that you develop residual learning. And one, he says, seek principles. The second, he says, find commonalities. And third, he says, grow a knowledge tree. This is an interesting three-part approach to this, because when you seek principles like we talked about, right, then you find commonalities. This is not unlike the concept of if you want to become an expert in something, read three best-selling books on it, and you will, you will know more than, say, 90% of the rest of the world. Very 80-20, right? Very 80-20 in its approach. So when you, when you, what you're doing when you read three best-selling books is, for example, A, and McEwen doesn't go into this at all. These are just some of the ways I have found practically that you can apply some of his principles is if you read three best-selling books, A, you're reading books that are popular, for better or for worse, but at least you know that these books have a wide reach. And then you're comparing, preferably, I should say, by three different authors. And then you're adding to that the different points of view of these authors. So you're getting some nuance into your mind about the concept, right? But most importantly, which is what I think McEwen is getting at here, is you will see commonalities. So if the three authors of those three best-selling books agree on three things, if they're well-chosen authors, well-chosen books, it's probably fair to say that those three things are maybe not immutable, but essential. They're essential. In my language, I would say they are vital or they are crucial. They're part of the vital few principles of that subject. The things they disagree on, you might want to look into further, but to make your learning more effortless, you want to seek out principles, you want to find commonalities, and then those commonalities will give you a clue as to what is crucial, what is vital. And the last one is grow a knowledge tree, where he talks about how you can then begin to expand your concepts, right? You can begin to if you have some commonalities in one field and in another field, you're able to begin to link those ideas together and essentially come up with something new. And he breaks this down even further in the next idea we'll unpack, which is about how ideas can interact to create new ideas. But to wrap this up, I think about this in terms of meta learning, which is thinking about how you learn, thinking about how you learn and not just going into learning blindly, but actually thinking about how you're going about it. And a good way is laid out in this framework of seek principles, find commonalities, and grow a knowledge tree. So that's something I believe you can apply right away. I can apply right away to our life, work, family, and business. All right. The other idea I want to share with you is this quote from the book, which says, different ideas in isolation represent linear knowledge, but those from residual knowledge, when interconnected, and I just wrote here, dot, dot, dot. Um, when interconnected, ideas from residual knowledge can be extremely powerful. So this is an interesting idea. The first thing I want to share with you or present to you is this idea that as long as your ideas are in isolation, they can only be linear. And that is a really important insight. 
because it's not something I think a lot of people, especially people who are not in the field of learning and development, would realize is ideas by themselves are just not very useful. They're not very useful. If you know how to do one particular task, let's say you're a graphic designer, right? I'll use my, my, world, of, my world of learning and development and consulting, for example. Let's say you're a very good graphic designer and you've built up a bunch of techniques, right? You've built up techniques about how to draw a line, uh, a technique about how to create a shadow, a technique about how to produce illusions of depth. And so you're very good at graphic designing. What you're really good at, if you really unpack that, is you have become good at taking all these linear pieces, drawing a line, creating a shadow, producing the illusion of depth, adding color. These are all linear knowledge, linear knowledges, if you will, that you have now managed to interconnect to produce something that is a lot more valuable, which is a graphic design. But if you think about what goes into a good graphic design, it's more than lines and shapes and drawings. There are other ideas. There's the creativity that goes into it, right? There is the, the, conceptual, the conceptual model that you're using to produce that art, if you will. And if you're, a, if you're a freelance graphic designer, you also have to know about some business acumen, right? What, what if you finish that and then maybe you want to begin to teach graphic design? Now you have to add knowledge about learning and development and how people learn. And you see how it begins to, to, to snowball into what uh, McEwen would call a, power, a powerful combination is all these little bits of all these ideas in isolation from the very basic of drawing a line to now potentially running a media company or a graphic design uh, practice or whatever. You have taken the linear bits of ideas and you've interconnected them to create something that's very powerful using residual, this linear and residual idea. So it's, it's a rather abstract, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of an abstraction, I would say. But the, the, the bottom line of this thought, this idea is that think about in your life, in my life, we should be thinking about how do we take things that are linear right now? How do we convert them first to residual to the point where maybe with very little effort, we can continue to get returns from them. And then we begin to connect those residual knowledges to the point of being something really powerful. You know, for example, the book is a good example. And I, I, I don't want this to come across as a plug for my book, this this podcast is about the community, about living 8020, the 8020 way. But the book is a really it's is a good example of this, I would say. Because the book started from linear knowledge. Bits of information I had gathered, experiences I had, stories I had experienced, uh, stories I had, information from my consulting and speaking, etc. etc. Those were all linear. But then they became collected into a book that was is now residual. But then taking ideas from the book and then interconnecting them with other things, say workshops, how to do a good workshop, which is part of my learning and design training, which is which has also become residual. Combining that with speaking, going out to speak about the book, which is really public speaking. You see how going from linear ideas 
too residual in the book to now interconnecting those with other forms of residual knowledge in the fields of learning and development of public speaking can really create a powerful package. And that's the gold in this, I believe. So for you, I would, I would encourage you to, to think about what are the things that you are that if you already have a head start and have gotten to the point of being residual in your knowledge, how can you begin to combine those with other aspects where you have residual knowledge to create something really powerful? And if you're still, if you feel like the things you really want to do, you're still at the linear level, then I think the first thing to do would be to get to residual, to get to residual effort so that that begins, that produces the results you want by re by combining with other residual knowledge knowledges, if you will, in your life. So this is again, I mean, I only picked the ones, the ideas that I thought were really powerful and in this book. Without a doubt, there are some that I must have left behind. But as I keep saying for all of them, this one is one to definitely think about and look at. And it's it's a potentially a game changer. Different ideas in isolation represent linear knowledge, but those from residual knowledge when interconnected can be very powerful. And the last one I want to share with you could have very easily been the first one. That is what I now call the principle of inversion. The principle of inversion. Again, McEwen uses language very, very brilliantly here by encapsulating this idea in, in inversion. In some ways, I would argue that the entire book is based on inversion. But before we go that far, let's talk about what inversion means. Inversion, as I'm defining it from this book, is the idea that when you're faced with something you don't like undesirable or not quite right, or quite frankly, in terms of effortlessness, something that's just hard or frustrating, you ask the inversion question, which is, what would this look like if it were easy? What would this look like if it were easy? And so you invert the question. Instead of, instead of obsessing about why it's hard, you just ask the question, what would it look like if it were easy? And then your brain essentially gets to work trying to figure that out for you. This is something I believe a lot of us have always intuitively understood, is that your brain is great at answering questions, but it's not very good at picking what questions it answers, right? If you ask a dumb question, you get a dumb answer from your brain. If you, your brain is just as willing to tell you why you are dumb as it is to tell you why you are smart. It all depends on what question you pose. And so this inversion idea is one that has shown up in, in productivity, in productivity literature many times. I believe Tim Ferriss talks about, you know, what would it look like if it were easy? I forget, and I'll put it in, I'll put it in the show notes if I find it. Another author, I think, talks about how if you, if, you, if you had only six months to build the business you thought would take 10 years, what would you do? These are all ways, what I call Occam's razors or Occam's chainsaws, really, to get to what's essential. But McEwen presents this in terms of effortlessness, and the inversion question asks, what would this look like if it were easy? And in some ways, this is the question the entire book answers, isn't it? It's how would what would effortlessness look like? But on a more tactical level, I invite you to 
to, to use this question, to use this principle of inversion as much as you can. In your relationships, if you're having a hard time with a partner, a child, a friend, whoever, um, you could easily ask, why is this so hard? And your brain will come up with a bunch of answers for you. It will tell you the person is a jerk or this job is just not right for you. You don't have the strengths or the skills. But instead of asking that, invert the situation. Ask, what would this look like if it were easy? And, and there's, an interesting, there's, there's, there's an interesting thing that happens. Your brain gets to work trying to answer that question because your brain does not like ambiguity. It does not like not knowing. It's important for your brain to have certainty for you to be able to navigate this crazy, often unpredictable world. So your brain does not like not knowing. So when you pose a question like that, without you trying too hard, you will start to get inspiration for, yeah, this, this is what it might look like if it's easy. You know, if you have a tough relationship with someone, say, what would this relationship look like if it was perfect or if it was working well? And you might get some answers that would you might not like, but that's just your mind, unconscious and conscious mind working together to present you the answers to, to that question. To give you an example, so one of the reasons why it took a long time between my first and second episode and this episode on the show is because it was hard. You know, I had, I had recorded my audiobook, but that was a very different experience from recording a podcast, a weekly podcast, no less, as I intended to be. The, the, the research was fun, but certain aspects of recording the podcast, actually recording it, for example, the setup, the teardown, the editing... All that stuff was a lot of work. And as much as I, I thought about, you know, outsourcing that stuff, but I'm also a believer in learning enough about something before you start to outsource it. That way you have some intelligence when you interact with the people you are outsourcing the work to. And like I said in the very first episode, part of this is the experience for me, is the learning and the growth that comes with committing to producing a podcast every week. That said, I still struggled. And I'm not going to say it was this book that did it for me, but I remember um, coming across this principle of inversion in some other way, even though it wasn't called the principle of inversion. And I asked what would this look like if it were easy? The answer did not come right away. It didn't. But something interesting happened. I started noticing things around me. I started noticing ads for software. I started noticing ads for hardware. When I went to research podcasting and research the process, the the kinds of information that I was that I found I was getting drawn to was information that would help. Sometimes it would be intentionally going out to seek that information. Other times it would be things that would just be said and I would just hear it and then I would go deeper. Long story short, in a matter of days, I figured out how to make this podcast work easier, to be easier, how to research easier, how to outline better, how to record by leveraging the best times of the day to record when I'm already set up. A lot of ideas. It did involve going out and buying a piece of gear. It wasn't cheap. However, that piece of gear has saved me, without a doubt, hours in editing time. And that for me is worth it. So sometimes, um, Asking the question, 
what would this look like if it were easier? Uh, you know, often it's not just this magic bullet that's just going to suddenly make things easier. But what it will do is it will get you thinking, first of all, A, this can be easier. And B, these are some of the ways it could become easier. Maybe in a future episode, we'll delve deeper into this law of what I'm calling the law or the principle of inversion. Because since I've been thinking about it, there's a lot to unpack here that perhaps for lack of time or lack of space or just, you know, maybe it just wasn't a thing that McEwen was thinking about very much here. But for now, uh, suffice to say that when you're faced with a situation that is quite frankly unpleasant or hard, you can deploy the vast powers of your conscious and unconscious mind to simply invert the situation and ask what would it look like if it were say, the way you wanted it to be. And on that note, I think we can bring this first 80-20 book breakdown to to an end. It's, it's, taken, it's taken quite a bit longer than I anticipated, but I hope you found the content valuable. I hope you found it meaningful. That's very important. And I hope you found it practicable. I hope you can take this information and actually go use it. And I'll put the breakdown, the summary in the show notes if you want to take a look at that. But I do invite you to start to apply these concepts in your life. I invite you to leave a review. Give me some feedback on this format of the 8020 uh, book review. But before we get into that, let's do our the last piece. So we started out with the overview. We've gone through the analysis now. Uh, let's go into the last bit, which is is the final thoughts on the book. Overall, I found effortless, make it easier to do what matters most, to be chock full of interesting, insightful, and even inspiring ideas. Greg McEwen has done a great job with this book, and I highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in living the 8020 way. As I mentioned, chock full of ideas. I think this is definitely one that you want to read more than once. Maybe go through the book uh, a second time, a third time. And when you do, I recommend that you, if you have the print version, uh, probably even the electronic version would have this, read through the headlines, the bold print. The book is written very purposefully, I would say, to make it easy for you to pick out the key ideas. So if you're reading it a second time, just go through, read the bold, the bold bits, the highlights, the pull quotes, and you will pretty much get the gist of each chapter. That brings us to the end of this particular 8020 book review. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not how much you know that matters, but what you do with what you know. See you on the next episode of 8020 Productivity. Thank you for listening to 8020 Productivity. If you enjoy the show, then subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And if you'd like to learn about how Anthony can help you or your organization drive gains through smart, focused productivity, then head over to anthonysani.com. Until the next episode, stay true to your vital few.